1: Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Premium, Eric Scopel on the show. And it's officially that time of the year where we are breaking in, excuse me, breaking in the basketball only podcasts. Uh, Both the men and the women are in action now, both have multiple games under their belts. We should note we're recording this podcast after, or on Monday afternoon, uh, before Oregon men play their third game of the year against Eastern Washington. We're hoping, we're assuming that they win that game because we're going to be talking about them being two and one and not one and two. Um, but just know that we're doing this podcast before the Eastern Washington game, so we won't have reaction from that. But, Eric, uh, both men and the women are, are in action now. Um, both teams have played some games. I think both teams have looked really good at times. Um, probably the men a little bit more than the women, but both teams do have – some things to kind of clean up a little bit Um, from a women's standpoint, four and O they've played two non-conference games. They've played two conference games. All of them have been blowouts. All of them have seen Oregon score 82 or more points, including 116 on their first game of the year against Seattle. Kelly Graves has also basically had a revolving door in terms of his rotations. And let's start there, Eric, just You look at this team, they have what 13 players, and they have a a loaded roster in which every player has played in every game except for two. Sedona Prince, because of an injury this past weekend, and Ariel Wilson did not get in one game. But there isn't a player that's averaging what more than 23 points or 23 minutes a game, and every. every rotational player is playing at least 10 minutes a game. This team is loaded.
0: It's a 12 player rotation. And I expect at some point that's going to get cut down a little bit to maybe nine to 10, but like it, and I think the reality for Kelly Graves right now is, and it's a good problem to have is who do you cut out and why? Because it's I don't think you can really point to many players on this roster and say they're not, you know, making contributions in one area or the other. I think the obvious one that's not is Ariel Wilson. And we knew that was the case coming in. She was a project. They brought her in from junior college. You go look at her junior college stats. She's not, she wasn't like a junior college All-American. I think she averaged like two points per game. They bring her in because she's got some height and some potential as a a three-point shooter um, and an offensive threat. But she's a work in progress. And the fact that she's played so far is, is just basically been, they've been kicking teams' butts so bad that she's got an opportunity. Um, when these games get closer, she's not playing, and she hasn't played aside from late in fourth quarters so far. So you can kind of scratch her off. But the other twelve are all really, really good, and I think there, to me, has developed kind of a hierarchy of about five players that need to be playing a lot that you that are your, kind of your core group. And I'm including Sedona Prince in this, and we'll get to a second in terms of her health. Um, and then you've got the seven players that I think is really like you're going to have to make some tough calls here because I don't think there is a clear, I don't think it's clear at all of like in the backcourt or even in the front court for that matter of like, who should be getting more minutes or less minutes at this point. Um, the five players to me that need to be playing frequently. And Aaron Bowley to me has been the team's best player. She's averaging about 17 points a game, about six rebounds. She's, you know, you think of her as catch and shoot player. She's attempted 48 field goals so far this season. Only 18 have been threes. She's shooting a lot of mid-range shots. She's getting to the room and finishing. Um, really seeing her game take up a notch. And you look at her and I ESPN released a mock draft on uh, on Saturday or Friday and they had her as one of the first-round draft picks. You kind of start seeing why. She is a very versatile offensive player. Um, fantastic start to the season. I think you have to see Taylor Mike Sell and Tahina Pow Pow in the backcourt continue to play a lot. Pow Pow in particular has really been impressive the last couple of games. Mike Sell had the 28-point game in the first game where she hit eight threes. She's, Mike stills very one-dimensional so far. We've talked about the versatility of Bully. Mike stills attempted 28 total shots. 22 have been from three-point range. She's basically a shooter. and She's hit 13 of them, which is about 60%, so she can stroke it. Um, but if she's not making threes, she's not much of an impact player. But her ability to shoot it, and every time it goes up now, you're like, that's going in just because of what, what we've seen so far early on. So I think those two have to play a lot. And then in the front court, Sussana Prince and Iara Saboli, are both really impressive offensive players. Um, I think Saboli showed a lot defensively in the game against Utah. She had four blocks in that game. Um, so those five players have to play a lot, I think. I think it's pretty clear that's your top five group. Um, Bowley, Prince, and Saboli in the front court. Pow Pow and Mike Sell in the back court. Maybe that's your starting rotation if you go big. If you don't go big, and we'll talk about it here, there's a couple guards in the back court you can turn to as well. Um, but the real the real thing is like, You've seen Sydney Parrish have her moments. She's another one of those highly regarded. She was the highest rated recruit from this group. Lydia Giomi, even as a senior, has had some really nice moments offensively in terms of finishing. She's 10 for 14 from the field. Um, Taylor Chavez and Jazz Shelley, pretty up and down at times, but both are very, very capable players. Um, And then Angela Dugalich, the last game, really stepped up. She had nine points, nine rebounds in 15 minutes. The high, you know, the upside there is extremely high. And I would even suggest that like she might have the highest upside of any front court player not named Prince or Soberly on the entire team. Um and then you get to the, then you get to Maddie Shear and Kylie Watson. And to me it's like maybe those are the two that you see kind of see a cut in minutes here once they need to make those cuts and they fall out of the rotation a little bit. But like Shear is so good defensively and Kelly Graves has said, I mean she leads the team in steals. he, he said that she's their best defensive player. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if she continues to carry on a role. So, yeah, I mean, like, in terms of the rotation right now, it's going to be really interesting to see when these games get a little closer. Because, again, they've won their first four games by about 30 points or more each time out. They have been I mean, they were up 53 points against Utah midway through the fourth quarter. Um, they haven't really needed to condense their rotation. They haven't needed, as you said, to play anyone more than about 22 to 23 minutes per game. But that's going to change. These games are going to get more competitive. I think it'll start this week with Oregon State. I think Oregon's the better team, but I don't expect Oregon to go and win by 30 points. I think they're going to have to play less players, fewer players, to win that to win that game. And how that settles in and kind of how that figures itself out, I think, is really interesting. This is a really unique team in terms of you play 12 players, and every player that comes in has contributions. And it's going to be tough, I think, for Kelly Graves to figure out who plays and who doesn't going forward.
1: Sedona Prince suffered an ankle injury or foot lower foot injury. Ankle. Um, Ankle. Uh, That happened Friday in the second half of a game against Colorado. We should note that she did return in that game. She did play and finish in that game. And then when her day was done, they put a boot on it. Um, she did not play Sunday morning against Utah and part of me, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here and you can give us the, the, the update, Yeah. but I look at this and think Utah was playing their first game of the year. Oregon was overwhelmingly the better team. Anyways, it didn't matter if Sedona played or not. There was no value in throwing her out there uh, to play that game and hurting it even more than just having her sit and have a day off and just get one extra day of rehab?
0: I lean towards that probably being the more likely scenario. I'll read you what Kelly Graves' quote was. He said, to be honest with you, and this was me asking him specifically about the Oregon State game, which is on Sunday in Corvallis, big-time early season matchup. He said, to be honest with you, I don't know. You guys saw her sprain her ankle in the last game. I think it's going to take some time. I thought that quote was telling we'll see. Hopefully she's able to play. I think we showed tonight we have other players who can step up, but gosh darn it. She's had such a long journey. I wish nothing but the best for her and hopefully she gets back soon. So, I mean, part of me agrees with you, Matt, in terms of like there was, well, certainly I agree with the concept of like there's no reason or real benefit of playing Sedona Prince against Utah. They're going to win that game going away. I was surprised they won by as many points as they did. It was Utah's first game, but Utah was was picked as one of the upper half teams in the conference and people thought they were going to make a step this year. Clearly that's not the case, or at least it wasn't in the first game. Um, my, my guess is like, I think it's probably legit, like 50, 50. She plays against Oregon state. I'd expect her back the following weekend when they travel um, or excuse me, when they host the Washington schools. Um, but like, I think I, I, I don't have a, I don't know if it's a guarantee she plays against Oregon State based upon he thinks it's going to take some time comment. Um, Matt, Matt is right. She came back in the game with the ankle injury against Colorado, but he subbed her out after probably 45 seconds to a minute, and he joked after the game was because she didn't box anyone out. Part of me thinks she wasn't feeling very good. It did, her foot didn't feel right, and so she came out, and they, they took her out. They looked at her foot again, and, and the fact that she's in a boot, you see that all the time with athletes, precautionary. But I think you have to have some concern here. And when and, and you go against Oregon State, which does have a really big front line, you'd love to have Sedona Prince, who statistically hasn't been as impressive, I think, as some people were anticipating. 12 points, 5.3 rebounds a game, shooting 51% from the field um, in those three games she played. But she is the most high-end talent on the team, in my opinion. Like This is a player who could legitimately be a top overall WNBA draft pick, could be a Pac-12 Player of the Year candidate, maybe not this year, but in future years, you want her available in this game. You want all hands on deck against the Beavers. Um, I know that they've got a couple of injuries of their own. Kennedy Brown, one of their bigs is also dealing with an injury. I don't know if she's going to play either, but like, regardless, you need, you'd like to have Prince available. And if it's not Prince again, the depth here is really impressive. Neera continues to be really impressive. She had 20 points and 10 rebounds on Friday, nine and nine shooting, blocked some shots. Um, Mentioned Lydia Giomi and Angelo Dugalich Those are very capable players and, and, and are both proven, in my opinion, at least. You know Dugalich is young. Um, and then you've got Kylie Watson, who is not showing up much of anything offensively. Needs to work on her free throws. She's one for nine to start the season, and that's just terrible. But she's pretty athletic. She can block shots. She can at least kind of um, contend with players down in the post. So, you know, if Prince doesn't play, they're still capable of winning. But their chances of beating the Beavers certainly improve if she's in the lineup.
1: What's next for this team? You kind of referenced it, but what's on the line for this game? feels like the next couple of weeks are some pretty critical weeks for this, this team.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, so they – actually, I got that wrong. So they, they do go – the next three games are all on the road. They go to Corvallis on the 13th and play Oregon State, and then they go to Seattle to play Washington on on December 19th, and and two days later, they play Washington State in Pullman on the 21st of December. Then there's about a 10-day break before the new year, um, before they return home against USC and UCLA. The reality is here, Matt, this schedule is pretty back-loaded, or at least it's not front-loaded in terms of the difficulty here. Oregon State, that'll be a tough game. Washington and Washington State aren't very good and Oregon should win both those games, even though they're on the road pretty handedly. USC's improved, but they're not Oregon good. UCLA will be a tough game. There's no doubt about it. That's a top-10-ranked team right now. They're ranked in the preseason above Oregon. Um, no longer the case. And then it really picks up on January 8th when they go to Stanford, um, and that's going to be two of potentially like two of the best teams in the country playing, and that'll be a big test. But you need to, until you get to that Stanford game, which, again, five games between... January 8th and where we are right now over the next month. You'd love to be five and zero. if you're four and one, that's probably not the worst thing in the world, but you really need to figure out your rotations. You really need to figure out some more identity things. Um, I asked Kelly Graves what that, what some areas of for improvement are. He said um, defensive rebounding and turnovers. This is a team that Colorado kind of hung with Oregon in that first half. And especially the early part of that game. Because they hit the glass really hard. They couldn't shoot it. Oregon's defense has been really impressive. and That's probably been one of the biggest surprises this season because I don't think people expected coming in. This was going to be like a defensive stopping team. But they've been really good in that area and they forced a lot of missed shots. But they haven't always hit the glass very hard against bigger teams, Stanford being one of them. You need to be better there. And the turnovers. And that's going to happen with young teams. Um, but they've just made a lot of kind of Unnecessary trying to make a flashy play turnovers. I'm um, really impressed with Tina Powell leading the, the team offensively. 20 assists, seven turnovers. It's like a three to one assist turnover ratio. The rest of the team, though, um, it's not even two to one on the assist turnover ratio. In fact, it's pretty close to just even. It's 57 to 42. Just some, some young players making decisions that they probably regret trying to make a little too much happened is kind of what I've seen. So they need to shore that up. I think this team is very capable of winning the conference this year. Um, I know it's early. I know they've only played four games. They haven't played any of the upper echelon teams in the conference, probably a little early to really make that kind of a claim, given the color, quality of competition so far. At the same time, I look at it and go, like, they've been just—they've done everything they could. They dominated the teams that they've played. And this game against Oregon State is going to be very telling to see where they're at. But I don't think we're going to have a full view of this team until they play Stanford on the eighth. And your hope from the next five games here to get progressively better, to whittle down your rotation, and to kind of figure out what this team, what the identity is offensively. Because right now, it's not a bad thing. But every game, there's been a different leading scorer. And that's a, and that's a good thing. But you'd also like to maybe see, when the game's on the line, a kind of a go-to player emerge. I think it's going to be Aaron Bully. Oregon hasn't needed to rely on a player like that. But I think you'd like to see... Um, in a closer game kind of who the key players are who's your crunch time group because Oregon hasn't had to do that and I think when they play some of these tougher teams especially Stanford that's going to be that's going to be needed they're going to have to know those answers
1: yeah Bully is Oregon's most experienced player on this team she also is one of the players that plays some of the most minutes 22 points per game she leads the team in scoring at 16.8 she's one of the top rebounders at 5.8 rebounds per game Uh, she's Recovered five steals this season. Um, She's shooting 44% on three pointers, 56% on every single field goal uh, attempt this season, and by far, I think, one of Oregon's more important players this year for the women's team. Okay, uh, before we take a break, real quick, Eric, um, four games in, has this team exceeded or met your expectations? I don't think they've underperformed, but have they exceeded or met your expectations for what was kind of expected from this year for this team? I think
0: they've exceeded them, man. I I really, and Kelly Graves said this too, on Sunday after the win over Utah of like, I don't think anyone expected they would lose to Colorado or Utah. No one expected they'd lose to Seattle or Portland either. Um, And obviously they won all those games, but I think by the margin and just how lopsided they were, I mean, Again, Colorado and Utah aren't the worst teams in this conference. I know they're not great. Um, I know that there are certainly flaws. Oregon's way more talented. But to see the way they handled business, took care of those teams, put them away early, were able to kind of fiddle with rotations and lineups in the fourth quarter of those games, speaks to just the overall impressiveness here. And then defensively, teams are averaging below 50 points per game. Teams are shooting 31% from the field, 17%. On three-point shots, that's ridiculous. And teams are averaging almost 20 turnovers a game against Oregon. So defensively, they've really exceeded expectations. And I think offensively, you'd like to see a three-point shooting a little better. Kelly Graves said coming into the season, this was going to be his best three-point shooting team. Well, last couple of years, they've shot over 40%. I think they've shot over 40%, and it's pretty ridiculous, from three. Each of the last five seasons, right now they're shooting 35% from three, and only about four players are above 40% that qualify. Um, and that's Bully, Mike Sell, Tina Pow-Pow, um, and Maddie Shear. So you'd like to see some of these other shooters step up. We know Taylor Chavez and Jess Shelley were two. Of, Chavez led the conference in three-point percentage last year. She's only one for four this year. Jess Shelley is one for 11. She started 0 for 10, hit her first one on Sunday. You'd like to see them step up. Sydney Parrish was touted as the best prep shooter in the country coming in. She's one for nine from three. And even Angela dugalich Um, she's one for seven so far. These are really high end three point shooters. I think that part is maybe the one part that I'm a little bit surprised by, but they've certainly made up for it because of how well they played on the other end of the court where they've been just locked down on defense.
1: It's going to do it for this half of the show. We're going to take a quick break, come back and we'll break down the men's two game start and what's coming to go the rest of the way for, for the men. All right. Welcome back to the odds and audibles podcast. I'm at Premier, Eric Scopel on the show with me. We recapped things for the Met for the women's side. And now let's turn the page and look to the men. Uh, they are one and one on the season. They were supposed to play Eastern Washington on the 25th. They were supposed to play Portland state over the weekend. Both those games were postponed. Uh, they, they, Opened the year December 2nd, so about a week and a half ago, a week ago or so against Missouri. They lost that game 83-75. And then on Friday, December 4th, they blew out Seton Hall 83-70. to And um, we should note that Oregon also is playing without Will Richardson, the most experienced player on this team. It was found out, discovered on Monday, uh, I believe November 30th, that – He injured his thumb and needed surgery on Tuesday and is out for six weeks. So Oregon had been prepping for Richardson to be the point guard all of training camp and then two days before the first game learned that he can't play. I think that kind of helps explain the story for the Missouri loss, part of it at least. Um, And then Oregon also got LJ Figueroa eligible for the Seton Hall game. And I think that also explains – Oregon's dominance against Seton Hall, in which we walk out of this seeing the team one and one. They have a game scheduled for Monday afternoon against Eastern Washington. Their third game or yeah, Eastern Washington, the third game of the year. And all of a sudden now this team's stacking games and we just knock on wood that the games can be played. Let's
0: let's start with the first game, Matt. And I know they're shorthanded without Richardson, without Figueroa. Richardson's going to be out, what, five more weeks here. Figueroa is now with the team. We don't have clarity on Aaron Estrada yet, but there's, I think, optimism that that may change soon. Um, Frank Capang is on campus. The the Ducks are getting deeper. What did you learn when they only had eight players against Missouri, and and what did you learn about this team and what they're missing with Will Richardson out of the lineup? Because from my perspective, it was kind of like, you kind of lost the the straw that stirred the drink there with Richardson, who I know you said the most experienced player, but also offensively the player that figures to have the ball in his hands the most, right?
1: Yeah. He's, I mean, he's the, he's going to be the trigger guy for the offense and Amari Hardy, the senior transfer from UNLV and Jalen Terry, the true freshman four-star point guard. Uh, they did not play well in, nope. in that Missouri game. Dana Altman said it. He said he was, disappointed in their play, not necessarily because they needed to play better, but because they were significantly better in practice than they were in that game. And then they showed that the following game against Seton hall, but against Missouri, they were a combined one of nine from the field. Uh, They had just three points among them. Uh, You look at their turnovers and they committed five together, uh, just six assists. Um, and so looking at that game, I, I think what, t- what took me away, one of the big takeaways I took from that was Oregon is going to need to be very careful with the ball. I, I, at Missouri, Missouri had played a game before Oregon had not. And it showed Missouri put a ton of pressure uh, on Oregon, whether it was the guards and Hardy and Terry, or whether it was other players on the team and Oregon made a bunch of Mistakes. They were very loose with the ball. They had just ten turnovers, which isn't that much in the well, grand scheme of things. And I think I think it was at eight in the first half, though. And when you have that many turnovers, and what was really killer were like they were like pick six turnovers, where Missouri would get it and they would just run right down the court and get an easy layup. those are the worst possible turnovers. Where. You're okay if you turn the ball over, bad pass, goes out of bounds. You get to run back, set your defense. Like That's a good turnover in a a sense. When you turn the ball over, it's just right to the other team and they go unimpeded for a layup. That's the worst possible situation, and that happened too much against Missouri. And I I would expect any team until Will, Will Richardson's back or Hardy and Terry can kind of show you that they can handle it, I would put a ton of pressure on Oregon. And and really kind of stretch your defense, overextend yourself a little bit, and just see how they respond. See if they can hold on to the ball and play strong with the ball, because you're right. Richardson was going to be that guy that was supposed to be the primary ball handler, the the, the guy that kind of triggered everything for the offense and got everything in, into set. And for that first game, it showed. Now we should also note that the second game against Seton Hall, a team who you know is From the Big East and, you know, they play an aggressive style of defense and in-your-face type of mentality. You know, Oregon had 14 turnovers in that game. But you look at Hardy, he had three. Jalen Terry had one. So they cut their turnovers down. Uh, Their assists were right about the same at five. But then their impact from a scoring production was significantly better. 15 points between the two of them. Uh, They shot, real quick here, seven of 12 from the field, so above 50%. Um, Three-pointers, they each made one. Hardy made one. Jalen Terry made three of five. Um, I thought the second game, they were significantly better. And their while their turnovers were up as a team of 14, the overall flow of the offense was a lot better in that game as well.
0: I think I look at these first two games here, and... I feel like Chris Duarte, Eric Williams, kind of sh- they kind of performed the way I expected they would. Both players in double figures so far on the season: 18 for Duarte, 14 for Williams. Obviously, Williams, another new player making his debut after sitting out last year as a transfer from Duquesne. I think the thing that stood out to me, and it's twofold here, is Oregon's starting front court. One guy has been unbelievable. And the other guy has been really underwhelming, I think, in certain instances. And of course, Eugene Amarui, 26 and a half points, seven and a half rebounds. That opening game against Missouri, Oregon probably loses that game by 20 points if he's not what he was. Just fantastic player. Um, super versatile. You run through the stats. I mean, he's filling up every stat imaginable on the on the team. Really excited to see him continue to develop. Kind of a play Oregon's never had before. Um, I know Matt. I'll turn it over to you in a second here. You can kind of share this, but you, you see a couple of player comparisons with him. But then the flip side of that is Enfali Dante, and I'll even include Chandler Lawson here as well, just the other front court guys. Pretty underwhelming play from both. Neither shooting above 50% from the field. Um, neither has really been very effective on offense. Dante does have five block shots, which is great to see in two games. But to me, it feels like you know what you've got at the kind of power forward-ish position from Amarui but what do you have at the center spot? Because it doesn't feel like Dante or Lawson, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Matt, and if you disagree because you followed a little more closely, it doesn't feel like either of those guys have kind of lived up to what we expected or hoped they would be so far.
1: Yeah, I I do think um, Dante had a a really bad game against Missouri, and Dana Altman kind of called him out on it after the game was over. And the second game against Seton Hall – he was significantly better. He played 20 minutes. Dana said that the goal is every game to play him 20 minutes right now. He had six points, but he had a couple just impressive dunks uh, coming off offensive rebounds. Four finished. He finished the game with four offensive rebounds, six total rebounds. He blocked two shots. He had a steal. He was diving for loose balls. He was super active. He was much more engaged. And I think the, the Seton Hall performance, if you get – that out of him and maybe a little bit more production scoring the ball, you're in a really good place. If the game against Missouri shows up and continues to be a trend, you're really concerned uh, about what you can get out of Infali Dante this season. Um, Chandler Lawson, I I look at him and think, this is steady Eddie. Lawson's going to give you five or six rebounds a game. He's going to give you four or five points a game. He's not going to really turn the ball over. He's not really going to block shots. Um, he's offensively, you know, he's not going to be a, a three-point shooter for you, uh, but he's going to be solid. And I think you know that, hey, we can get 20 good minutes out of him, and that's where we're at. And I think I'm think for i not as concerned about Lawson than I am with the up-and-down play of Infali Dante. I, I think Lawson will get better. Um, I do think we'll see him play uh, a little bit more and and play a little bit better than we have uh, the first two games of the year. But I think da- Dante is the key. He's the wild card. He's the secret sauce, secret weapon, whatever you want to call it. If Oregon can get him playing like he did against Seton Hall over the course of the season, this program elevates itself tremendously because he is 6'11". He's 250 pounds and He can dominate the glass offensively and defensively, and he can protect the paint and be that anchor in the middle that, you know, this team last season didn't really have that shot blocker on the team. And he could turn himself into that type of player, but it's, can he be engaged enough to get there? I mean, he's got five blocks in two games already.
0: That's
1: that's a really good number. And he's got four steals in two games already. So I look at this and think, he is getting engaged he he only has 4 fouls through two games so you don't have foul problems either but it's just go if you just watch the highlights or watch the film again of the first game and the second game and watch his just body and his body language and the energy he has they're night and day and you have to prevent game 1 from showing up and you have to create scenarios where game 2 is what you get every night because when he's engaged and when he's going, this team is a lot better, but when he's not a big hole, all of a sudden shows up now, how concerned am I with this group? Um, I'm more concerned right now than about the Richardson injury than I am about getting enough out of Dante and getting enough out of Lawson. Um, I don't think Frank campaign is going to be a guy that you can really count on for more than 10 minutes a game. If he even plays this season, um, I just think he's he's behind. He's, he's entering a season with no offseason. COVID, he's younger than, than every other guy on the team, similar to Dante's situation last year. I think it's probably best for him to redshirt, but if you can get him in for a couple games, get him in. So I look at Dante and Lawson being kind of your two primary big guys, and I think we're also going to see that in crunch time, neither of those guys will be on the floor because I think best the best lineup Oregon can throw out there. Is this like super it's they're they're not small, but they're not tall. Eugene like Amarui six, at center. Um, you 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 put Eric Williams at power forward, you have LJ Figueroa at small forward, you have Chris Duarte at point guard. And until Will Richardson gets back, you either have Hardy or Terry out there, but then eventually it'll be Will Richardson, and your entire lineup is six five and six six. You don't have anyone smaller, you don't have anyone taller but your length is tremendous. Your athleticism is tremendous. Your versatility is unmatched.
0: The Amarui thing, I think, has been really interesting. Yes. far, And I want to spend a little time talking about him, Matt, because you talk about a crunch time lineup where your biggest guy is, is 6'6", 235, but tremendous wingspan. I know a lot of people have kind of used this comparison, but it's a little bit of a Draymond green crunch time Warriors lineup. And of course, I'm now comparing... Oregon's crunch time to the best crunch time lineup in the history of like basketball, at least over the last decade or so. Um, that's not fair, but like he has been far, far superior from what I had anticipated offensively in particular. I mean, he, he, he really kept Oregon in that game against Missouri. Um, super impressed with what he was able to do there. What, and I just used the Draymond Green compare Green comparison. I know you used a different comparison on the site. Kind of who do you see when you see him? Because to me, he's unlike anything Oregon's had um, in a totality of like what his game is.
1: Yeah, like I knew he was going to be good. I was probably the only player or only media member in the preseason media poll to vote him All Conference. Um, I didn't vote him first or second team, but I I had him as a you know eleven through fifteen player. On in the league, um, he's even exceeding my expectations 26 and a half points. Per it's two games, but 26 and a half points, seven and a half rebounds, three assists. He does have five turnovers, which is a little bit of a concern. He has two blocks, he's playing almost 35 minutes a game. He's shooting 40% on three pointers. I was not expecting that. He's gotten to the free throw line 13 times, he's made nine of them. That needs to get better, but you can tell when he showed up till now, he has lost a lot of weight. And I think he's been able to yet retain the strength he had previously. And he brings an element that I, I put it on Twitter, but it's like, it's almost as if Oregon just kind of collected the best attributes of a couple players and Matt mixed them into one, like the footwork and the hustle and the grit of, uh, an Arsalan Kazemi, um, the mid-range game of Dylan Brooks, the athletic power forward body of an Olu um, and maybe like the the, the consistent three-point shooting from a, that power forward position like of an Elgin Cook. Like he does so many things well that some of the other great guys before him at that position have, have done, and he's doing it at a really high level. I, is he going to average twenty six a game? No, I, I don't think he'll he'll sustain that. I don't think Oregon's offense wants that. But he gives Oregon a guy that that literally he can score in almost every single way. He can get to the free throw line and, and make free throws there. He can make three pointers. He's got a good driving attack. He can make the mid range game. And now he's showing with his like Dirk Nowitzki one legged fadeaway the ability to hit the back to the basket turnaround shot, which is almost impossible to defend if you can do it correctly with the one-legged back, you know, fadeaway jumper. He's been a revelation. And I think in two games, it's safe to say he's the team's best player and he's the team's guy that you're going to look to when you need a big bucket. And through two games, I don't know how teams are going to stop him.
0: Again, pretty uneven performances to start. And, of course, the first game, Morgan was really handcuffed based upon what I, I we've discussed in the podcast previously was just like complete mismanagement by the NCAA of not having yeah. two of Oregon's players, like to not have even a decision one way or the other, especially with LJ Figueroa, who had a really good case and clearly a good enough case to get cleared. Let's Just really quickly, what did you see from him in his debut and then from a, a depth of this team, assuming – this is what they've got, plus Kepnong, and I guess you can throw Estrada in there if if you think that's possible. Do they have enough bodies? I mean because coming into the year we thought this team was going to be deeper than a lot of teams we'd seen in Oregon, and through no fault really of their own, and just through some bad luck and again some mismanagement from the organization that runs this whole thing, they were short to start the season what's your con- what's your conference level from a depth perspective right now
1: they've got they've got the perfect amount, I think okay. When Will when Will gets back, um, I, I think before Will gets back, you've got eight guys. Luke Wurz, probably the ninth guy. I don't think you can count on Estrada. I don't think you can count on Frank Capang. Maybe they get in for a, a little bit. I would personally play them if you can, just because everyone gets a free year of eligibility. There's no harm in, in playing them. Um, obviously, Estrada has to be cleared first. Capang can uh, once he gets through clearance and compliance and all of that, which – I would imagine he'll play probably the game after the Washington game because um, that's when he joins the team on the 12th. They play on the 12th. He's not playing in that game. So maybe the the, the game after that, whenever that is, whoever that is, we don't know. Um, but depth perspective, they have enough, they have enough big guys. They have enough guards. They have enough wings to do it when they're healthy. I think this season is going to hinge upon, can you get through these next five or so weeks and put yourself in a position where you haven't lost a lot of ground, or maybe you've, you've put yourself ahead and you can work your, you can work Will Richardson back into the mix. Um, I think LJ Figueroa is a huge difference maker. And honestly, I don't know. He, he should start. I don't know if he will. He might become that like a six man, super wave microwave type guy. Um, I don't know who you take off. If he, if you do want to start LJ Figueroa, but I think this is a, a guy in which Eugene Almarui is your best player. I think LJ is going to become the guy that keeps everything together and, and is the reason why you go from being a really good team to an elite team. Like he could be your number one on any other given year at Oregon. Um, and if he's your number two, it's, it's like you have two bona fide superstars on your team in my eyes. And we haven't even talked about Chris Duarte. Like, yeah, like he's on the team too. And I think when you pair Duarte and you pair Figueroa and you pair Eric Williams together, those three guys, you look at a, a, a group that you're not getting to the lane on those three guys. They're all really good defenders and it's going to be incredibly hard to get to the rim and get a clean shot because Altman now has three guys that you can say essentially one through three, we're, we're going to lock those spots down. And if one guy gets in foul trouble guarding your best player, we have two other more than capable defenders to throw at you that are elite defenders. So that's huge. OJ's impact nine rebounds, six points, four steals, one block, one turnover, Two assists, twenty-six minutes. He shot. J- he shot just t- three shots, made two, two free-, two free throws made as well. Three offensive rebounds. I, I look at him and think this is this is going to be a guy that could like go eight points, five rebounds, five uh, you know five assists and three steals a game. Like he's not in double digits in any category, but he is so good in every category that it's just, wow, he's just like the complete glue guy.
0: We talked about what was coming up for the Oregon women earlier on the show. The men's schedule is a little bit more bizarre if you just kind of take a <laughs> look at it. I mean, well, in part because we had no idea if they were going to get much of any non-conference schedule in play. We talked about, chronicled some of the games that they did have planned that, didn't, that fell through. Obviously, the Eastern Washington game, which was supposed to open the season on the 25th, is now being played. Later today, we're recording this on Monday. Um, we'll, by the time you listen to this podcast, that game will likely have already been played. I think it will be already played. Yes, we're going to get be- it's up Tuesday. Um, but Oregon has two opportunities this week before they start Pac-12 play to play Eastern Washington and then Florida A&M. Then they start the season. This is where it's kind of interesting if you look at it. Then they play three Pac-12 games, but each game has over a week between them. They play Washington on December 12th. Then they play UCLA on the 23rd. And then one more game before the turn of the year against California on the 31st. It's a really interesting schedule. It's kind of staggered here, where I think Dane Altman and company and this team, obviously, Will Richardson is not coming back through the door anytime soon. That's going to be sometime, um, you know, in, in, in mid to late January at the earliest, probably. But I think an opportunity here to learn from each of these games. And as we've seen so far from Washington, I don't know if that, you know, that game's on the road and technically it would be in a a road game. There's no atmosphere. Um, That's not a very good team. What do you think Oregon needs to accomplish um, until they play? I think UCLA is really the first test on December 23rd.
1: Yeah. For me, it's get your rotations in, figure out who you're, you're going to finish games with, who you want to start games with. And then secondly, you need to work on your defense and you need to work on getting Amari Hardy and Jalen Terry as up to speed as humanly possible to run the point and ensure that you may not win games because of their play at the point guard position, but you don't lose games because of their play at the point guard position. Like game manager-esque type deal. Like I I don't think either guy is – like Hardy is more of a combo guard who in limited minutes uh, can maybe run the point to give the, you know, the original point guard a quick breather, but he's more of a scorer, more of a a, a guy that you, you ask to be scoring Jalen Terry is a freshman. Um, he's going to have his ups and downs. He, you, I, I don't want to see a team, you know, bank an entire year success on the hands of a true freshman. That's a ton of pressure if you can avoid it. I think he could do well. I think Jalen Terry could be a guy that, you know, Hey, maybe he's, maybe he comes out and he does nine points and three rebounds and three assists a game. But I think it's more likely you're going to see the peaks and valleys. You're going to see a game where he has 15 points and then follow it up with two points and four turnovers. Um, You know, I I just think that's kind of where we're at. I think Jalen Taylor will be, a very good point guard for Oregon, potentially even next year. I just think he's maybe one year from being consistent there. Maybe he surprises me. Maybe he does. I don't know. But I I think going forward, it's can you get your rotations and your final lineup set? I think we almost know that. Um, And then can you solidify the point guard spots so that you limit the mistakes there, and then your defense needs to get better? Offensively, I think – they're gonna be spe- they're gonna be special there. They'll be fine. They'll work through it. They'll they'll get, they'll get better each and every week. If you can be good every night out defensively, this team will have a chance to run through the Pac-12. I mean, I picked them to win the league with healthy, and I still think they can get there without Richardson for six weeks. I think they can come in and 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 you know if if they look at this and say okay, in six weeks' time, it's the Arizona games on January 16th and and. January 14th. If Let's just assume he doesn't play in those games. If you get him back for the Oregon State game, so you have played two, four, six, eight conference games. I think I realistically think six and two is very likely in that scenario from a conference standpoint. And so in those next 12 conference games following that, can you go 10 and two? That's, I think, very realistic as well for this team. And you go – 16-4, 16 and four, you win the league at 16 and four. In my eyes, if you drop a couple games and over these next six weeks in conference play, it's going to make re- winning the league very difficult. And so it's how how solid can you get at the guard spots and how solid can you get defensively until Will gets back. That's the goal. Offensively, things will figure it out. I think we we know who the go to scorers are. I think we know who your shutdown defenders are, but Will your rotations get better? Will you get better at the trap? Will you get better at the the matchup zone? That's the things that they need to work on.
0: I guess just last one for you, Matt. Is there any confidence or what's your stance on Aaron Estrada getting eligible immediately? I
1: don't think, I don't think duck fans should be so focused on him getting eligible as well. Um, Originally he wanted a red shirt. I personally, am even wondering if they even applied for a waiver like Dana Altman has when he's asked about what's the status with LJ, what's the status with, with, uh, Estrada. He's primarily just talked about LJ and he was asked about Estrada's uh, a couple of days ago and was like, well, his is different. He came here tr- wanting to register anyways. And, you know, th- should he, should he be eligible? Yes. Will Oregon push real hard to get him eligible because he wanted to register anyways? Part of me thinks it's kind of one of those deals of, hey, we'd love to have him, but if we don't, we're prepared for it anyways. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast basketball edition. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show, getting yourselves familiar with the men and the women's teams, both going for league championships, repeating as league championships. The women would be winning their fourth straight league championship. The men, their second straight league championship. It's going to be a fun ride, fun season. Hopefully you guys follow it along on duckterritory.com and as well on this podcast. Until we talk to you on Wednesday for the mailbag, uh, we'll talk to you soon.
0: Talk to you later, folks.